You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the broadcast. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. And I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you once again from the sunny climes of Western Japan, where it is already the 23rd of August, 2012. So once again, thank you for joining us this evening. It's great to have you here for what promises to be another interesting conversation on the lines of my own neighborhood here in Japan, talking about the Asia-Pacific region, which, as our old friend Hillary Clinton noted last year at the APEC conference, is becoming the center of gravity of the 21st century, as more of the economic and even military uh, focus of the American empire turns this way. And uh, that means that it's going to be some interesting times here in East Asia and in Southeast Asia and in Asia-Pacific generally. And uh, that may be a good thing and might also be a horrible thing. And uh, at any rate, we'll be documenting it here on the program, since it is, as I say, pretty much in my backyard. And tonight, to help us with that documentation, we have on the line for you Brock West from Australia, who is running a blog called Asia Pacific Perspective, which is available at ap-perspective.blogspot.com. And, of course, that will be linked up in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com slash radio. And I suggest that for those of you out there who haven't taken a look at this, I suggest you do so because it has a lot of information coming out on this Asia-Pacific region and some of the very important and very underreported geopolitical issues that are going on here that uh, I just don't think a lot of people are getting in the mainstream American media, but which is very much going to start affecting people's lives, I think, in, in very uh, very personal ways. It's going to start hitting home, I think, in the next coming decades uh, as, again, more of the center of gravity turns to Asia-Pacific. So let's bring him up on the program. Uh, Brock West, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Hi, James. It's uh, very exciting to be here. Um, as you know, I'm a uh, long-time listener and supporter of everything you do, so thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, we've been in correspondence for quite a while now, which was why I was so happy to see you start the Asia-Pacific Perspective blog. I think it is a welcome uh, addition to the blogosphere because, again, this is a, an important issue. But why specifically did you decide to start this blog? Um, well, basically just on the back of... Uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, announcements and the, the uh, America's announcements that it would be turning its attention to the Asia-Pacific region. And I felt that there was a bit of a void in kind of critical uh, reporting and, uh, uh, you know, about the area. So I thought it was a, uh, a needed resource. I, I agree completely. It, it really is uh, underrepresented in a lot of the, the American media, certainly, and, and a lot of the, the media generally. Uh, obviously, in Australia, you, you get to, to look at a lot of these issues in a much more up-close way than a lot of people in the American listening audience, for example, do on a regular basis. So that is that is good. And you, you're drawing from a lot of different sources, and uh, I, I appreciate that because I myself am even learning about some of these sources on the issue from some of the things that you link to, but not only atimes.com, the Asia Times, for example, that we were talking to uh, Pepe Escobar yesterday, but uh, China Daily and uh, TPPWatch.org and uh, Japan Times, and there are so many different resources on here that you're pulling from that I think it's valuable to direct people to. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the sources that you use for this blog. Um, well, I like to get sources from both the uh, from the MSN and also from from the uh, alternative media. Um, 
a lot of the a lot of the mainstream sources I find are uh, ChinaUSFocus.com. Uh, for Japan, definitely Japan Times, NHK World. You know, I know they are state-run organizations, but they're still important to pay attention to. I think. Um, and on the alternative side, you know, you can't really go past sites like not only your, your own uh, and your own Fukushima update, but uh, Strat Risk with Michael Vale and the Lie. Um, stop imperialism with those two fantastic resources that I like to, you know. Absolutely. Well, I understand that. I think we need to have a, a mixture of the MSM to understand what the uh, the dominant propaganda is, as well as the alternative solutions and, and alternatives. So let's uh, let's hold it right there. We'll come back once again talking to Brock West, Asia Pacific perspective, right after this. All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Once again, James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Brock West of the Asia Pacific Perspective blog. That's ap-perspective.blogspot.com. And once again, a very valuable addition to the blogosphere with resources on the Asia Pacific region and what's happening here generally. So, Brock, uh, we were talking a little bit about the the blog in general there, but let's let's talk a little bit more about what motivated you to get into blogging in the first place. Uh, so yeah, uh, a couple of months ago now, a uh, good friend of ours, you may know him by the name of James Evan Pilato of uh, Media Monarchy and FeedWorldOrder.com, put a put a call out on his weekly show for anyone wanting to help out on one of the 10,000 sites that he seems to be running these days. Um, so I dropped him a line and next thing you know, I'm posting stories on uh, CyberspaceWorld.com and I really gave me the taste for it and realised that this is not that complicated and, and you know, it takes a bit of time and effort and and uh, commitment, but it's a lot of fun. So, um, as I said, I've always felt that the important issues and developments here weren't being covered, so that was the perfect uh, excuse for me to start up the blog. That's awesome to hear, and that is such a valuable thing that James is doing with his sites, is letting people come in and start to get that taste of blogging and realizing, oh, it's actually really quite easy. So, uh, absolutely, I'm glad to see that that's, that's spreading, and hopefully that will continue to spread even further as people realize that this is the time, this is the precise moment in time when we can really grasp this technology and, and use it to, uh, to bypass all of the billions of dollars of mainstream media corporate programming propaganda they've been shoving down our throats for decades now we can really turn this technology against them and uh it's it might only be a small window of opportunity we have here it might be closing so let's make the most of it while we have it so once again my hats off to you for getting involved in this and uh for everyone out there who's uh, thinking of doing the same i hope they'll take some inspiration from this example and uh what an example it is again it's uh it's a new blog but it has a lot of very interesting posts you, obviously you're uh you're thinking quite a bit about what to what to post up on here and what people are, are, are should be interested in. So let's take a look at some of these issues. So for example, we have one of the, uh, the I guess the elephant in the room when it comes to this. We've already mentioned Hillary Clinton talking about this and, and basically the eyes of the American empire turning more towards the Asia Pacific and it is the question of uh, America and how and when and in what way it's going to assert its power in the region. And we see the growing American-Australian uh, military alliance uh, coming through with, of course, the Darwin deployment of Marines uh, that, that began earlier this year to uh, to Darwin, Australia, and you have a recent uh, article up USI's Perth Naval Base, and uh, it just continues to get more and more of an entangling alliance. Let's talk about this uh, this alliance and what's really behind it. Yeah, sure. Um, well, just on the uh, the troops in Darwin. Um, so at the end of July, uh, Australia, United States, New Zealand. Singapore, Thailand, and Indonesia uh, Air Forces held 
some simulated combat manoeuvres and drills, uh, otherwise known as a pitch black exercise. Um, now, the reason this is significant is that it's the first real show of any kind of close military cooperation between Indonesia and Australia since uh, NATO and Australian, and Australian forces put down an anti-intelligence militia back in 1999. Um, but that's a whole other backstory. We'll have to do it another show, I think. Um, but another significant development was that the first it was the first real public display of Indonesia's secretive uh, Russian-made Sukhoi Su-30 fighter jets. Um, these planes have been built to compete with the American-made F-A-18s, so, uh, which are used by, obviously, the Australian and uh, US forces. Um, so it's the first time that Indonesia has sent its primary um, air defence aircraft to a foreign nation, which I think is really interesting development. So we're definitely seeing an, an increased rate of military drills and war games and the strengthening of military ties all over the region, especially here in the southern part of the Asia-Pacific um, you know, and you have to put that down to, you know, the presence of the United States. And, you know, at the end of last year, Obama came here and now we've got, you know, 2,500 troops in rotation in and out of Darwin. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so you can see how that plays out. And, and this has to be seen in that bigger, bigger picture of what's going on at, at the Russia and China recently having naval drills in the East China Sea. Uh, the SCO, the, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, is increasingly staging military co- joint military drills. So there's a much, much broader picture that shows that, uh, once again, it's, it's this China-Russia BRICS non-aligned country alliance against the America and its proxies, um, squabbling over resources, squabbling over the region in general. And I think we have to see that that broader picture. And absolutely, this is part of it. The Australia-American alliance is very much a, a central part of that strategy. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the this post that you have up from FutureDirections.org up on Asia Pacific perspective right now. The Australia-U.S. alliance: a cost-benefit analysis. Sure, well, this is from the website, yeah, futuredirections.org.au, written by a guy named Kavan Hogue, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and I, did, I, I came across it, it is from April this year, but to me it still it really gives a quite an insightful and balanced uh, way up of the uh, Australia-US alliance with uh, which, you know, China has claimed the, uh, the uh, Cold War relations, so uh, recently when uh, our Foreign Minister Bob Carr went over there. Um, but just uh, paraphrasing, um, quote, the, the American alliance is an article of faith in Australia because it is said to underpin our security. There have been many reviews and white papers, but it's, perhaps it is, it is time for a hard-headed cost-benefit analysis. Um, Australians have always been afraid of standing on their own two feet. Do we really need a sugar daddy to protect us from, potential, from a potentially hostile world? Britain was that protector until the British line lost its teeth. Then we turned to Uncle Sam who is our current protector, but do we really need a protector? Currently, Australia and Singapore are the only countries in our immediate region whose armed forces are externally orientated. All others in the Southeast Asia have a domestic capability directed primarily towards the suppression of internal unrest, although this gives them a a, a capability to defend themselves against foreign invasion. Um, Just reading down here, he goes through the pros and the cons of this and I'll just go down the article a little bit. Uh, the US has made it clear that it wants to be the preeminent power in the region, yet China also sees itself as number one. We cannot assume that current moderate US administration will remain in power, and we may find ourselves under great pressure to declare for the US against China. Even under a moderate administration, American policymakers expect Australia to follow us, to follow where they lead. 
another downside to this alliance is that we are seen by many other countries as a client state of the US, or proxy state, if you will. This may increase the risk of a terrorist attack on Australia uh, if it is seen as a proxy for the US. If we are to support the US in its overseas ventures, our military planners face a major, major problem in working out what force structure to build. Where will they ask us to join them in next? James? Well, absolutely. This is uh, a, an interesting article that really starts to question that axiomatic principle that Australia and America are joined at the hip and naturally so. And that has been taken as an article of faith for, for a, quite a while. And it's, I think, important for the Australian people to start questioning that, especially now, as we say, as we, they start moving into this closer military alliance. So what's your perspective there on the ground in Australia? What what are people saying, thinking, or, or it, it, are they really coming around or changing their viewpoint over what's taken place recently, or is this just kind of background? I wish I could say they were, but yeah, this is kind of background. There was a bit of, not really opposition to it, but it definitely made the, made the papers when... Um, when the uh, Obama and the administration came down here uh, late last year. Um, but in the general sense of the Australian public, this isn't really seen as a, as a, a negative thing at all. You know, it's just, it's a, it's kind of a symbiotic relationship. It's just kind of the way it is, it, the way it is, you know, it's the way it, it always has been since, you know, world wars. And, uh, you know, there's no real push or anything to change that anytime soon, it, it would seem, which right. I think is same. I'm not, of course, I'm not here waving a Chinese flag or anything, but I, I just think it's important to question these alliances, especially when, you know, our place in the region is going to become that much more important and, uh, and volatile in the coming decades. Uh, that's such an important point that you just made, because once again, we can be shoved into that dialectic. Well, if we're against uh, the US-Australia alliance, then we must want some Chinese, greater Chinese alliance. Well, no, what if we don't want either side of that poisoned pie? And uh, you have a, a related video posted up here, uh, no need to choose sides between China and US. I haven't had a chance to watch that yet, but I'm assuming that's roughly along the lines of what we're seeing here. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, surprisingly, this is actually from our new foreign minister, uh, Bob Carr, um, who who used to be the New South Wales uh, Premier for uh, quite some time. Um, there has been a small amount of debate about, you know, Australia's relationship with, uh, you know, between the US and China and if we're just some kind of conduit bridge to, you know, uh, for these two countries to kind of uh, communicate. Um, and we've had Hugh White uh, come out, who was a... Uh, uh, or a professor, I believe, and also former Prime Minister Paul Keating come out saying that America needs to accept that China is a uh, rising superpower and, uh, and, then, and that, you know, uh, it needs to kind of stand down its uh, aggressive military stance that it's, you know, pretty much been its only trump card for the last couple of decades. So, yeah, uh, that video is pretty much, he's just pretty much saying there is no real uh, need to choose sides because we have this kind of balance at the moment, but... I don't know if uh, the Chinese and the Americans see it exactly the same way. <laughs> I would imagine not, but uh, I guess that's coming from that uh, that geostrategic perspective of uh, what can we get out of the U.S., what can we get out of China. But for the average average person out there, I think obviously that's not really for their benefit, no matter what type of you know strategic alliances or, or economic benefits supposedly accrue from this. It's not really going to be in the interest of the average Australian who is being used basically as populations throughout the world are as pawns in this game. And uh, mm -hmm. just uh, obviously America trying to establish their toehold in the region and China obviously seeing another market or potential market for their exported slave goods. So again, uh, you know, which side of that uh, that hor horrific uh, poison pie do you want to eat from? Well, how about neither? Um, 
Yeah, it, it does create that dialectic situation, as we've talked about in so many different respects in, in different cases, where unfortunately people can be railroaded into one side or another, even when it's not in their interest to do so. And it is such an effective strategy that unfortunately, again, a lot of Australians, I'm sure, will be will be herded along into it. And that's not to speak against the Australian people themselves. It's just a uh, part of human nature that we want to choose one or the other side if two sides are dangled in front of us. All right, a lot to talk about there, but let's... Let's take another short break. Once again, talking to Brock West, Asia Pacific Perspective. That's ap-perspective.blogspot.com. We'll continue talking about China, the U.S., and the Asia Pacific generally right after these messages. All right, friends, welcome back. Welcome back to the program tonight. Once again, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Brock West of the Asia Pacific Perspective blog. And once again, the link to that will be in the show notes for tonight's episode. So, uh, Brock, let's move right along. We're talking about U.S. and uh, China in the Asia-Pacific region. And, of course, this extends to other parts of the globe as well and is, as I say, tied into that greater context of the scramble for resources and uh, military uh, superiority that's happening in different parts of the globe right now. You have that reflected up on the website in the form of an article from the Asia Times Online, China's Winning Strategy in Africa. Sure, yeah, this, this does come from atimes.com. Um, and I just found it interesting because uh, I, a lot of people seem to have been taken by surprise at China's recent resurgence in the last decade. They've kind of been the, the quiet red dragon sleeping in the uh, opposite side of the world when we've had all this turmoil going on in, you know, in the Middle East and uh, for the last decade. Um, and this really, this article really nails it as to why uh, China is doing so well at the moment, it seems to be slowing down a little bit right now, which uh, is also uh, pause for thought. But uh, reading from the article, um, <clears throat> quote, uh, contention between China and the United States is extending far beyond the current hotspot of the South China Sea. As China's economy continues its rapid expansion, a truly global realignment of power is taking place. Regions that were dominated once by the West for centuries are now coming into China's orbit, challenging America's position at the top of a once unipolar world. This trend is particularly evident in Africa. The United States is now seeking to counter Chinese economic and political inroads in the African continent. The African policies of both the US and China are important not only in their own right, but also because these policies serve to indicate the significant differences between these two powers' general foreign uh, between these two powers' general foreign st- strategies and worldviews. Uh, James. Absolutely. Well, this is something that I've been covering a little bit in in some of my recent work, including one of my recent newsletters. And uh, I think that we saw a lot of this under the surface in Hillary Clinton's recent trip to Africa, her State Department trip, where she was meeting with a lot of uh, the, the well, a lot of thugs and dictators in, in some of the countries that are basically U.S. proxies, and chiding them for having the gall to actually try to accept loan development funds and things from, from China, which is having more and more of an effect in, the, in that continent, as, uh, as pr- perhaps best symbolically evidenced by the, I think, $200 million uh, African Union facility that China funded into existence. So, so uh, there's definitely an increasing power play taking place in Africa right now. 
And I think this ties into Asia Pacific in, in a number of ways, but also because, uh, the, the part of this is predicated on, on some of the naval, uh, technologies and that are, are, that are available to, to both China and America that to exert their influence in further flung places around the globe. So that part of what's taking place in Sudan, for example, is, uh, is a scramble for Sudanese oil. And, uh, the creation of South Sudan was very much about that and about getting a friendly government in, in possession of, uh, some of Sudan's most richest oil reserves. But, uh, China has been investing heavily in Sudan, uh, in the development of their oil fields and also in funding, uh, pipelines that would take the, the Sudanese oil all the way up to the coast where they have a port facility. So we see this again and again throughout the world. We see it in Africa. We see it, uh, even in, in, uh, Pakistan where China again has port facilities that are being destabilized by local indigenous groups that are being funded by the U.S. to, uh, to stir up trouble. So we see this happening all over and it's, I think, a reflection of that, uh, that's, that fundamental power power play that's taking place in uh in asia pacific as well and let's let's talk about uh, something that might seem like a trivial story but perhaps reflects some of this t- type of cold war proxy war tension that's that's happening in the uh region generally you had a, a story posted up about the basically the olympics and the china u.s rivalry yeah this is an interesting story who um i will just put a quick shout out to a good friend of mine uh you know, he knows who he is. I won't mention him by name, but he has been helping me out a little bit uh, on the site. And um, I will be traveling away uh, in about a month or so. So he's going to look after uh, the majority of the running of the site. So uh, definitely th- thank you to him for that. But, um, yeah, the headline is U.S.-China relations. It's not a game. Uh, for, and this comes from one of the sites that I frequently reference, uh, ChinaUSFocus.com. Uh, quote, the Summer Olympic Games are over. The 30th Olympiad is in the record books. The symbolism of the game should not be lost on anyone. Soft power was, was being flexed along with bulging muscles. Um, at Beijing in 2008, on their home turf, China outpaced Team USA in the number of gold medals won. This was the same year that, that the global economic meltdown began in America, greatly weakening our foundation globally. It's only a game. Yeah, right. Both sides are in it to win it. There is nationalistic pride and bragging rights tied up in medal counts surrounding these so-called games. With the 2012 London Olympics now behind us, America once again ended up on top with more medals. Is this a harbinger of things to come? Do the Olympics really mirror life? Perhaps there is some symbolism swimming around the states as China surpassed Germany and Japan to occupy the number two spot behind the US as the world's largest economy and gaining fast. Many global economists expect China to surpass the US economy and gain the number one spot within a decade or less. Being number one, however, is not new territory for China. They will be they will be reclaiming this position as the world's biggest economy, uh, economy, a role it held for 18 of the past 20 centuries. It seems it sometimes seems that the U.S. is on a global economic seesaw, with China occupying the upper position. How do we maintain balance going forward? Which I think is a very good question. With the U.S. government in debt to the tune of nearly 15 trillion, and I think it's nearly 16 now. Okay. Unfortunately, you're cutting out a bit there, so we'll have to leave it there as we're coming up to the break. But uh, but absolutely, it's important for people to look at the symbolism of these games and how it plays into some of the tensions, and I think it's uh, an interesting way of taking a look at it. So let's uh, leave it on that note, and we'll continue again talking about the Asia-Pacific region with Brock West right after these messages. All right, let's move along to the next 
point on the Asia-Pacific perspective agenda as we're talking once again to the proprietor of that website, Brock West, and talking about some of the uh, the big moves on the geostrategic uh, chessboard that's taking place right now with America and China, of course, uh, being two of the major players in the region. And uh, just before the break, we were talking about that uh, article on uh, the uh, U.S.-China relations, and it's not just a game. Perhaps you can just uh, finish off with what you were saying there. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, as I was saying, uh, it seems sometimes that the U.S. is on a global economic seesaw with China occupying the upper position. Uh, how do we maintain a balance going forward? With the U.S. government in debt of, to the tune of nearly $15 trillion, which I think is nearly 16 now, um, with more than $1.2 trillion of that borrowed from China to keep, our, to keep the American economy limping along, who wasn't aware of China becoming America's banker? Um, and there is a related story there. Uh, China's threat to U.S. is overblown, so I would encourage people to check that out as well. Absolutely. Well, as I was saying before the break, I think that the uh, things like the Olympic Games and things like this, which are distraction and spectacle on a certain level, still we have to look at the fact that spectacle is spectacle because it does have a certain, you know, a capture and uh, is able to capture the public's imagination and attention and focus us on issues like this that do have bigger implications. So people who are interested in that can actually take a look at something that I did many, many years ago before I even started the Corbett Report. I wrote an article for the Bright Light Films uh, Journal on Online about uh, Tron and uh, Olympic wish fulfillment uh, in in Tron, which is interesting because Tron came out basically right after the uh, the boycotted Soviet Olympics of uh, 1980. So America didn't get the chance to kick their Ruskies behinds in in the Olympics, so they wanted to do it. So they did it in Hollywood instead in in Tron with the blue and the red teams, etc. It's interesting to see how politics take place in these spectacles. And of course, anyone who knows history knows that uh, spectacles were very much what made the Roman empire function really not the roman republic so much all right let's uh let's move along uh on the issue of china and its uh its growing military presence in the region and the u.s trying to step up its military presence in the 21st century that means the new newfangled technology of drones is becoming more of an issue let's talk a little bit about some of the drones and then how they're being introduced to the region yeah well firstly uh when obama the obama administration announced that uh we would have the 2,500 troops being rotated in Darwin. Almost immediately, that came with a uh, proposal for uh, drones at the Cocos Islands, which is uh, northwest of about 600 miles northwest of the Australian coast. Um, I, ha- I have been trying to keep tabs on this, but n- nothing new as yet. But you can bet your bottom dollar that uh, th- it is not the last we hear to hear of it in the Australian region. That's for sure. Um, just, just going off this, uh, U.S. deploying surveillance drones near China, and this ties in really well with the uh, seemingly very recent and uh, almost over, uh, overflowing tension between China and Japan at the moment over the Senkaku Islands, um, which really has uh, all the hallmarks of turning possibly quite nasty very very rapidly. So um, I hope, uh, hope the uh, diplomatic processes in both countries can keep a cool head at least for a little while longer. Um, this comes from antiwar.com. Uh, quote, the Pentagon will begin flying surveillance drones at the coastlines of Japan, China and Taiwan, according to an agreement reached after talks between Defence Secretary Leon Panetta and Japanese Defence Minister Satoshi Morimoto at, at the Pentagon on Sunday. Uh, I will just put in a note that this I did post this on Friday, the 10th of August. Um, the unmanned aerial missions will focus on a Pacific island chain called the uh, Diayutai Islands, or Senkaku in Japanese, which have become the focal point of a simmering territorial dispute between China and Japan. Even Senator, Senator John McCain, one of the biggest hawks in Congress, called the deployment unnecessarily provocative. 
So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a sign when, uh, when McCain is calling it uh, provocative. I think that is a sign that it's a step too far. But, uh, but as you say, I mean, it's very, very interesting and it does tie in directly with the Senkaku Island, uh, dispute, which is, uh, which is happening even as we speak with, um, some disputed landings that happened there. And you, uh, covered this in a post the other day. Anti-Japan protests erupt in China over disputed island. Tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, I would just just like to give people a quick background on the islands, if, if I may. Um, these uh, these eight uninhabited islands have rocks, uh, or they're pretty much rocks if you look at them, um, lying the East China Sea. They have a total uh, area of about seven square kilometres uh, northwest of Taiwan. Um, they matter because they are close to a strategically important shipping lanes, offer, also offer rich fishing grounds and are thought to contain very, very vast natural gas and oil deposits. Um they, Japan claimed them in uh, 18, 1895 and had erected a sovereignty marker. Um, after World War II, Japan renounced the claims to a number of territories and islands, including Taiwan, in the 1951 Treaty of San Francisco. Um, but under the treaty, the Nansai Shoto Islands came under U.S. trusteeship and were then, were then returned to Japan in 1971 under the Okinawa Reversal Deal. Um, it was around this time that it was discovered that there were natural oil and gas uh, resources there, and surprise, surprise, that's when the uh, the Chinese and the Taiwanese started showing a fair bit of interest in the uh, in the Senkakus. Yeah, I wonder wonder why that is. Mm, I'm not really sure. So anyway, um, I think it was the start of last week, uh, there was the arrest and deportation of Chinese nationals who landed on the remote islands, um, which sparked quite large anti-Japanese demonstrations and rallies across uh uh, major cities in China, and there was, you know, they were vandalizing Japanese uh, restaurants and businesses and everything. Um, the Chinese landing on the Japan controlled il- uh, inlets was followed the same day by a Japanese landing that the Japan Coast Guard did little to deter, which kind of really ticked off Beijing no end. So, um, Right, and it's important to understand for people out there that I don't think it takes very much at all to spark a big anti-Japanese protest in China. As, uh, Anti-Japanese sentiment is always threatening to boil over. But the fact that it's allowed to take place, these demonstrations were allowed to happen and things got a bit out of hand shows that obviously Beijing is using that as part of a political card that they, they use. So they, they allow the demonstrations when there are these types of disputes. So uh, that's a, that's a whole kind of other part of all of this that's going on under the surface that, that threatens the, uh, the the diplomatic relations, really, between Ch- Japan and China. So um, I, I'm not sure. I, I haven't seen anything on this in the last 24 hours or so. Is there any developments so far that you've seen on this? Um, yes, just uh, Wednesday, yesterday, uh, for us here on the uh, in the Asia-Pacific. Uh, this comes from uh, Yomi Yomori, which is uh, a... Uh, Website that you, the, I know you use and I use quite a lot as well. I find it really quite good. Um, Tokyo government files for state approval for landing on Senkaku's. Uh, quote, the, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government formally filed Wednesday for the state approval for landing on the Senkaku Islands, whose sovereignty has also been claimed by China. Hoping, hoping that the landing will be made as early as August 29, the Tokyo government hopes to receive a central government response by the end of this week. Uh, this also correlates with uh, the Chinese proposal that they're going to send back the activists who went there in October. So I think it's, I think it's uh, Tokyo and Japan trying to uh, one up uh, China before they uh, apparently go back there, which you know I really hope doesn't happen because it could turn nasty very ugly, especially with uh, U.S. drones hovering above. 
Yes, which uh, adds just another layer to this this whole mix. Well, let's let's move on to some other things that are important in Australia right now and affecting the Australian population um, in a very you know direct way within their pocketbooks now, and that's the the carbon tax, which was recently ramrodded through uh, despite the uh, the promises of of the prime minister that it would not happen on her watch. Well, it it just did. So let's talk about this carbon ta- tax, what what it is, uh, how it was instituted, and what's really happening now. Sure. Uh, so basically, in a nutshell, the carbon tax is, uh, and I'm quoting from the official uh, government website, uh, a flat charge of $23 per tonne of carbon emissions that will be levied on the top 500 Australian polluters. It was originally going to be the top 1,000 polluters, but the government decided against that. It is designed to change energy use and encourage investment in clean energy sources such as solar, gas and wind, end quote. Um, now, perhaps... I know I may be crazy, but it just might be a little bit easier for these giant monolithic multinational energy companies uh, to just pass on just pass on these extra debts to consumers. Uh, what do you reckon, James? A little bit more likely? Uh, that sounds like uh, pretty much guaranteed, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so the whole notion that making these enormous corporations pay a few extra dollars for polluting is somehow going to persuade them to reduce their emissions and invest in cleaner energies is uh, really beyond me. Um, you know the whole the whole story about the carbon tax. It was really kind of a the, the debate about it really turned ugly quite quickly once you know the uh, government decided after the uh, apparently successful Copenhagen summit, which uh, by all reports was an abysmal failure. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know they 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 trotted out the line that the science is settled. There is a full there is a global consensus and the debate is over. So. Uh, Pretty much immediately after that, uh, anyone crazy enough to challenge the, the practicality and the, even the viability of the scheme, uh, you know, anyone who brought up the topic of ClimateGate or to, who dared even, you know, uh, look at the uh, IPCC data, which is what, you know, all these governments base their assumptions on, was declared a climate change denier, fringe lunatic, conspiracy theorist, flat earther. You've heard it all before. Uh, where was I here? Um, and, you know, the sad thing was is that the debate really was stifled by that, you know, because, you know, once the government says something here, the mainstream media really just parrots it uh, and that gets it into the public consciousness. And it was really sad because there was a lot of uh, sound and honest arguments that were just not being heard. They were just being shouted down and abused. Um, but, you know, there is still some good there is still some good battlers out there. I know uh, Joanne Nova is definitely one of them and I would definitely recommend people check out her site because uh, it's a treasure trove of... Uh, Essentially, you know, uh, ammunition for the uh, crazy climate change skeptic out there. Yeah, people who actually demand some sort of proof that of the uh, the attribution of climate change that they're trying to make. Um, indeed, so it, it strikes me that there is a significant uh, sentiment among a, a large section of the Australian public that is skeptical. So it is interesting to me that uh, that that becomes one of the leaders in the world in terms of in, in implementing one of these carbon taxes. Absolutely. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I mean, the, the carbon tax is extremely unpopular here and it's, you know, essentially going to cost uh, Julia Gillard a seat. Uh, but then, you know, it actually recently just came out that um, an independent MP came out and said that Tony Abbott, who's our uh, opposition leader and, you know, most likely our future PM, uh, secretly told not only him but several other uh, politicians that if he were elected, he would bring in a price on carbon anyway. Um, so, you know, that just once again, as you pointed out many, many times before, they may, they may bicker and argue and bitch about certain insignificant topics, but when it comes to the real core, you know, Agenda 21 type of issues, they, they lock arms and 
you know, uh, they're essentially and they're the same right down to their very foundation. Right. It's like the uh, the American political debate is now about uh, the legitimate rape comments of some crazy oh. gop senator yeah. instead of, you know, the fact that Amer- Obama wants to kill American citizens and put them on as a presidential assassination lists and Romney wants to start World War Three in the Middle East by giving a green light to Israel. And all of these real issues get swept under the rug because of the latest fad. So it's the exact same thing in Australia and here in Japan and everywhere else around the world. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, uh, the, the level of censorship actually to e- even criticise this really has been uh, has really been taken up another level. Uh, there was a there was a Facebook post on uh, the ABC website uh, only a couple of days ago, and I'm not sure who it was, but they posted that um, the Obama administration uh, he, he was questioning something about the Obama administration going on about the chemicals of mass destruction in Syria now. The, you know this this new red line that. Uh, Pepe Escobar cleverly pointed out uh, on last night's show, and the and the comments had simply posted that uh, Syria's wep- uh, Syria's illegal wars. What about Obama's illegal wars and weapons and illegal bombings and stuff? And that was immediately taken down. It was actually quite a big story here. So, you know, don't you dare speak speak your mind about you know. About yeah, any same. important issue, exactly. Well, as I understand, part of this carbon tax thing is, is there's some sort of it's illegal to for a business to claim that they are raising prices because of the carbon tax. I haven't actually haven't actually heard that. Um, I know that uh, some of the interesting uh, businesses and uh, and uh, industries that have been exempt for this are the fuel industry, um, the air conditioning industry as well. So I mean, like these are the biggest apparently the biggest uh, polluters of carbon emissions, but it would seem strange to me that they would be exempt for some reason. So, Yeah, again, what what is the point of this and what's it going to accomplish? And again, even if you buy into all of this and you really exactly. do believe that the carbon emissions are the scourge of humanity, um, Australia is not going to turn the tide and China is is by far now the, the, the largest growing polluter on the, on the planet, becoming the, the largest uh, in, overall and uh, and starting to catch up with with some of the developed countries in terms of per capita uh, emissions. So again, you know, unless there is some sort of framework in that regard, it's it's not going to have any effect whatsoever anyway. So I'm not sure exactly what this is about, other than maybe setting the precedent, I guess, for other countries to follow. Well, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, you know, personally, I think this could be used as another, uh, uh, you know, uh, another potential uh, platform to create a you know a new enemy, a new boogeyman. You know, once once the Middle East boogeyman and the uh, and the you know terrorist boogeyman uh, collapse collapses, which it pretty much already has. You know, we're going to have the global warming boogeyman. So, and if you've got a, the, big, the world's biggest polluter, China, all of a sudden, you know, they can be uh, touted in the media as uh, terrorists or you yeah, know, and all bl- climate of, terrorists, I suppose. Climate that's, terrorists, exactly, yeah. exactly right. Unfortunately, right, and uh, it sounds ridiculous, but uh, that's unfortunately the way this this tends to play out. So, so do you think there there is any possibility for for this being repealed or being taken out, or is as you say, is it just going to be no matter who gets in, it's going to continue? Unfortunately, so, and I generally think we're only going to not going to see a uh, decrease in the price of carbon. We'll only see an increase, as you know. Almost all of a sudden, the uh, emissions our emissions aren't decreasing, which they've already shown are not. Um, of course, living expenses are already going up by at least 10 to 20% on conservative estimates, um, which, you know, already here in Australia, lower and middle class uh, families and people are already feeling the, the pinch. Um, we, we did come through the, the, the global financial crisis relatively unscathed, 
um, due to our strong uh, our strong economic partnership with China. But you know we we are symbiotically connected to China in that way, and you know there is credible reports now that China is slowing down as well. So. That doesn't bode well. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I think there's definitely a global global slowdown happening at the moment, and and China's uh, fall from grace has been predicted for a long time now, and it has not really happened yet. So we'll have to we'll have to see how the the latest slowdown affects them. But but certainly, it uh, one can imagine it can't maintain those kinds of astronomical GDP growths every single year. Or so uh, when it starts to slow down, Australia, uh, Japan, the U.S., other economies are going to be affected by that, and uh, that's. It's all part of this wonderful globalist system that they've uh, crafted us all into. Um, uh, as a Canadian, I can attest to the types of bro- bro- brainwashing and propaganda that Canadian uh, children are sus- sus- uh, put under in um, Canadian public schools uh, in terms of loving the UN and the idea of global government and all of that kind of rhetoric. What about in Australia? Much the same, I have to say. Obviously, I haven't been in school for over a decade now, but uh, I mean... Even just on the TV, we had a few years ago the show called the, the Carbon Cops or the Climate Cops or something like that. Um, so there is a definite indoctrination uh, process going on through through the media, uh, through newspapers. Um, I mean, like that. What was that uh, story? Sorry, once again, they can't, you got cut off there a little bit. Okay, well, let's uh, let's again let's take another break. We're again talking to Brock West, ap-perspective.blogspot.com. I hope you will go there to check out some of these stories. But on that note, we'll come back to wrap things up right after this break. All right, friends, we're back here in the final minutes of tonight's edition of the broadcast. Once again, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and we've been talking to Brock West of the Asia Pacific Perspective blog. And uh, just in the final couple of minutes here, I want to at least broach the subject of something that's uh, that's a pretty large subject for people here in the region and only going to become more important as more people uh, start to become aware of this and sign on to it, and it becomes more of a political uh, force, and that's the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TPPA, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. And you have a post up right now on Asia-Pacific Perspective. What is the TPPA? Perhaps you can run us through that. Sure thing. Uh, so officially, the TPPA is a multinational trade agreement between several signatory countries. These include Australia, New Zealand, Brunei, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, Peru, Vietnam, Chile, the United States, um, and recently announced at the end of G20, which was larger than reported, Canada and Mexico. Can anyone say NAFTA? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's essentially it's a trade agreement, but there's a lot of uh, shady uh, dealings and chapters in this that I should point out this this agreement is being kept completely in secret. Um, the only reason we know about it at the moment is due to leaks. Um, but some of the sticking points definitely are um, that, uh, that that some of the sticking points that the trade agreement uh, wants to affect is uh, laws requiring labeling labeling of genetically modified food and drink in New Zealand and abroad, which is a big issue here because we still have the uh, normal law of being able to actually label GMO stuff. Um, also, also importantly too, is the intellectual property rights chapter of the TPPA um, that uh, anticipates that unless a more moderate and balanced version is adopted, New Zealand, Canada and Australia shoppers, schools and libraries would end up paying more for their books and DVDs because it would let copyright holders veto parallel importing, 
small, medium-sized software and IT businesses would have their innovation, innovative visions stifled by constraining patent, patented laws. James? Well, I can't really attest to what people in Australia are saying, thinking, or, or, or even know about this, but I, I can, I'm pretty sure that most Canadians don't. And again, as you mentioned, Canada and Mexico recently signing on to the agreement has been largely unreported. How about in Australia? Largely unreported. A lot of people don't really even know about it yet. Um, so hence why I've decided to put it up. I mean, there is a push by the Greens. Um, I'm, I'm not, a, once again, I'm not here waving my Greens flag, but there has been a solid push by the Greens to do it. But at least here in Australia, uh, one of the Green Senators, Scott Ludlam, put in a motion to at least uh, get some disclosure on the TPPA, but he was completely stonewalled, nothing to see here, kind of treatment. Well, that's, that's again, in these parliamentary systems, sometimes the opposition will actually serve as an opposition and will uh, question the, the things until they get some taste of power, and then they'll, of course, renege on all of it. But, again, we have to make what we can of uh, political alliances as uh, when and is, as and if we can. Um, again, a huge issue, and uh, we can't do justice to it here just in the final few seconds, but I hope people will look into the TPP and uh, realize that it's just another one of these straitjackets that we're being led into of these overarching uh, regional agreements that will start to gradually undermine all of our, our national governments and any pretense that we're living in democratic uh, institutions where the people have any say whatsoever in the way they're being governed. As unfortunately it shifts into the uh, the fascist corporate global enslavement grid. On that note, uh, we're fresh out of time for another edition of Corporate Report Radio. Brock West, it's been a pleasure having you here, so we're looking forward to uh, having you on again in the future to talk more about Asia Pacific. Thanks for joining us tonight. It's been a pleasure, James. Thank you. All right. It has been a pleasure, and I hope all of you out there will go and follow the link from the show notes at CorbettReport.com slash radio to find this this blog and to start uh, frequenting it and uh, keeping up to date with what's happening in this region. And on that note, uh, that's going to do it for tonight. So once again, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I'm wishing you all a good night wherever you may be in the world, and I'll talk to you again in 23 hours.